23. And as you guys are making your way to Matthew 23, let me just remind you that Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and as he does so, he is uh, looking to lay out for them that Jesus is their long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so as he does that, he reveals Jesus as their king in chapters 1 through 10. And so we see the first revelation of Jesus Christ in these first 10 chapters. Now this revelation, though, is met with a different response than we might have assumed, especially seeing as how the Jewish people have waited for 1,500 years, from the time of Moses, for this great prophet to actually come to the nation of Israel. And so they've waited all this time, but he isn't welcomed with open arms. Instead, uh, the king is actually resisted in chapters 11 through 13. And so as Jesus is resisted, he then uh, doesn't just go to battle with them. He instead takes the message. He takes his ball, and he goes to another court. He goes up uh, north to Lebanon and east into uh, Syria and into Jordan. And he heads to these other areas to teach the good news, the gospel message, to give it to people that actually want to hear it. And so in chapters 14 through 20, we see the king retreating. And as he retreats, he takes his disciples along with him, and he uses this time, this a three-year period to actually teach them and train them in the ways of the Old Testament. He, he essentially unveils the Old Testament uh, for them. And what we like to say is uh, the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed, and the, excuse me, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so this is the revelation of Jesus that he's giving them in chapters 14 through 20. But then, where we picked up a couple weeks ago in chapter 21, we see Jesus now coming back into Israel and specifically into Jerusalem in chapter 21. And we're going to see the king is going to go from being resisted to flat out rejected. But it begins triumphantly. In chapter 21, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem during their Passover feast. And this is a fulfillment of of the prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9. To the very day, Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly. And then in chapter 22, we see that the king is now being examined. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the Lamb of God entering at this mark before the Passover feast, the time of examination for the Lamb. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, is there to be examined exactly as it was laid out there in Exodus chapter 12. He becomes the fulfillment of the Passover lamb during the Passover feast. God's trying to paint this a pretty obvious picture for us to be able to grasp. And so we see that he passes the examination. He's deemed perfect. In fact, they have no more questions for him. So now where we're going to be in chapter 23 today is the final public message of Jesus to the people. And so the scene looks something like this. You've got uh, the city of Jerusalem. It's now pulsating with uh, upwards to two and a half to three million people. A town that maybe had two to three hundred thousand has grown to ten times that size during the Passover feast. And Jesus is at the epicenter of all activities for Passover. He's there at the temple and he's teaching most likely in the court of the Gentiles. There were all these different courts that groups of people were allowed to come into based upon uh, your gender, based upon your ethnicity. But Jesus is out among the common people where the women could come, the Pharisees could come, the Gentiles could come, and he's teaching there in the court of the Gentiles. And so thousands of people most likely are gathered around him, 
And it's here we arrive in chapter 23. But interestingly enough, for his final message, he does not choose a message of salvation, which you might think that Jesus would pick for his final public message. Instead, he chooses to give a message of denunciation. And so he's actually going to denounce a specific group of people. This would be the, the legalists, the Pharisees, those that had been supposed to be the religious leaders. He's going to point his message back towards them, and he's going to give them a very hellfire and brimstone message. And so if you grew up in denominational Christianity, this probably makes you recoil just a little bit. Right? So for years and years, if we didn't go to church and get a hellfire and brimstone message, we might feel like we didn't get a good message. If the pastor didn't sweat a little bit, if he didn't slam his hand down and tell people that they're going to hell if they don't change, we, we, we would literally go, look, I didn't get the hell beat out of me today, so I don't know that the pastor had his A game on. So that's the way oftentimes that we would feel. And, and so in the generations to come, in my generation, for example, the last 20 years or so, what's happened is churches have gone away from that type of message, and now it's all feel good. And so come on in. Let's feel good about you. We don't want to talk about hell at all because we don't want to beat the hell out of you like they used to back in the day. And so now you've got the very cushy messages. We don't want to mention hellfire and brimstone. And what I would uh, promote to you is that Jesus did both. <laughs> he, in fact, actually spoke far more about hell than he did about heaven throughout Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not the goodness of God that leads a man to salvation. That's what Paul says in Romans 2.4. That is very true. It's the goodness of God that actually leads a man to salvation. But here's the thing. If for long enough we ignore his grace, and we ignore his grace, and we ignore his grace, then we must face his wrath. That's precisely what he's going to do. For three years, he's given messages of salvation and grace and so it's come a time where they must hear that there is a consequence to, to denying Jesus Christ. So pick up with me, if you would, in chapter 23, after that feel-good message on Independence Day, welcome into Woodlawn Chapel. Chapter 23, verse 1. And then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in, the, in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you, to, excuse me, therefore they tell you to observe, and that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men." They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And so what we see is Jesus is going to start his uh, last message with essentially addressing how not to lead a group of people. So he's going directly at the Pharisees, and he's lining them up, and he's saying, look, look, I'm going to tell you how not to uh, do church leadership. It starts with uh, false leaders in verses 1 and 2 lack God-given authority. In verse 2, we read that the scribes and Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. Now, in some of your translations, you might actually get a better translation than this. It reads, have seated themselves. 
They were not placed in this seat by God, but they decided on their own accord that they're going to be put in a position of leadership, which is a huge question for us. If you're a part of a church at all, you need to ask, is the leader of that place called by God? Because if he or she is not, it's a big warning flag. And that's precisely what's happening here for these leaders, these Pharisees and scribes. They were not called by God to be in the seat of Moses. They put themselves in that position. Secondly, he mentions in verse 3 that false leaders lack integrity. He says, therefore, what they, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but they do not do according to their own works. So they're telling you things to do. By the way, they're telling you the law. The Pharisees and the scribes were the fence of the law is what they called themselves. What they said was good, but instead they didn't actually follow through in their own lives. They lacked integrity. And so it didn't mean to throw out the message. So often we see that, that a church leader falls, and what do we do? We, we discredit the message because the messenger has been discredited. The message is still good. The issue is with the messenger. And so that's precisely what Jesus is saying, is that, is that these men lacked integrity. The third thing we see is that false leaders lack sympathy. In verse 4, we read, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move one of their fingers. And so they lack sympathy for the people. Uh, the people that they were preaching to, they already had hard lives. They lived in an agrarian society. It's not easy to be a farmer. And so they already had plenty of tasks, and instead of helping them with this and having sympathy, they actually loaded more burdens upon them. Here's more things you need to do. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes would take the law of Moses, and then they would write their own commentary to it. You know what? You need more instruction. We need to go deeper into the Word of God and tell you all the ways you need to be doing these things correctly. And so when Jesus came up against them for their oral traditions, it was specifically these additional uh, commentaries, what's known as the Talmud. Uh, they would layer on these extra things. This is what God meant when he said this. By the way, if you ever start by saying, this is what God meant, you're probably in a danger zone right there because God says exactly what he means. And so we need to take the interpretations very literally and not add to it. Besides the fact that as they layered on these additional oppressive requirements, uh, it went directly against the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew 11.30, he says, take my yoke upon you, right? So now we're going to recoil. We got more yokes. But he says, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when Jesus said that, he was telling them, look, I want you to take my yoke upon you, but guess who is yoked up to you when you do that? It's Jesus. The yoke was that wood beam that attached to the back of the oxen. They would team two oxen together. What he's essentially saying is, I want to be your travel companion. Let me work alongside you. We'll do this together. So Jesus had sympathy where these false leaders did not. Finally, in verses of 5 through 7, we see that false leaders lack humility. We read that they were looking to actually have themselves be known before men. In verse 5 it says, but they, have their, they do their works so that they can be seen by men. They would go out into the marketplace and make sure that everyone saw them doing all their holy exercises. They would make their phylacteries broad. Now, many of you don't know what a phylactery is. I had a picture of it last week. But they would take the great Shema, that uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. This is their great Shema. They would write it on scrolls and roll it up, and they would put it in these wood boxes and literally attach them to their foreheads because God's law said it should be between the frontlets of your eyes. And so they'd walk around with these boxes, and they still do to this day. The Orthodox Jews have these boxes on their heads with the great Shema written on them. But for these Jews, they would make the boxes bigger and bigger and bigger before long, they're walking around like a 1980s hair band, right? Like, you know that the more awesome the band is, the bigger the hair gets, right? You remember those days? I, I may be the only one. And, and who, who, there's a little quiz here, nothing to do with the scripture, but who had the best hair in all the 80s? Cinderella, right? Don't know what you got till it's gone. Right, this is precisely, for these guys, what's going on. They didn't know what they had until it was gone because they were too busy trying to get other people to notice them. And beyond that, they would actually take their, the hem of their garments, the border of their garments, and make them wider and wider. In Numbers uh, chapter 15, we see this instruction God gives for the border of their garments, that hem around the bottom of their prayer shawl was to be interlaced with blue thread. The blue is to actually remind them that they're after something far better after heaven. And so as the woman who is bleeding continually for 12 years came to Jesus, what does she want to touch in his, uh, in his shawl? She wants to touch the hem of his garment. She wants to have a little access to heaven. But for these men, they would actually take the border of those garments and make them wider and wider and wider because why? They're more heavenly. They're far more holy than anybody else. So this is what Jesus is giving them as a setup for the rest of the message. But he's not going to leave them there just about what bad leaders are. He's going to say, all right, in the next few verses, here's what good leadership should look like. Pick up with me in verse 8. But you do not be called rabbi or teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call another do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. In verse 10, and do not be called teacher, for one, of, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And so we see what not to do in the first seven verses, and now Jesus is going to say, all right, uh, don't do any of that. Instead, do these two things. Uh, first of all, in verses 8 through 10, uh, good spiritual leaders avoid elevated titles. They are not looking for the big job title. Jesus, we find, even in his ministry, he who deserved to have a title actually intentionally avoided titles and recognition all the way up until chapter 21 of Matthew. The only time that he even acknowledged that he was king was on his triumphal entry four days before they crucified him. And so we see Jesus intentionally avoiding titles, and even when it came to praise, he intentionally diverts all praise back to the Father. Look through the miracles of Jesus, and what you find is he was continually diverting praise, not to himself, but give it to the Father. Give this praise to where it belongs and so he over and over again does this, which is why in ministry, I will intentionally avoid uh, any kind of title. If you want to call me pastor, I will take that, even though it kind of gives me the willies a little bit, because most days I don't feel like a pastor. I'm hanging on to this thing just like you guys are. And, and any time I hear the word reverend, 
boy, there is nothing reverential about me at all. I mean, hang around a little bit. You'll find out. That there's, there's, no, there's no reason for it. And so I just have a little different calling, and perhaps you have, but we're all working on this life together. That's what Jesus is saying. You're all brethren. And he also makes a clear point. In John chapter 2, we see that he didn't give any credence to what men said about him. John chapter 2, verse 24 says this, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, speaking of the men around him, because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew that what was in man. He knew exactly what was in man's heart, so he wasn't looking for accolades from any man because he knew just how evil and wicked they truly were. Now then the second thing that good leaders do after they avoid elevated titles is they accept lowly tasks. In verses 11 and 12, we see that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, what do we see? He was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. Can you imagine this? This was a job they would give only to the lowest of the servants. Why? Because they wore sandals in those days. I mean, Air Jerusalem's is what Jesus walked around on. And, and so their feet were nasty. I mean, dusty, dirty roads, camel poop. I mean, you can imagine the stuff that's on their feet. But here's Jesus, the God of the universe, actually washing the feet of his disciples. He ate with sinners. Who would be caught eating with a sinner, a tax collector? He also touched lepers. I mean, these were the scourge of all society, lepers. They were convinced that God actually allowed them to have leprosy and we were to stay away. They were unclean. So unclean they would have to actually call out to people as they approached, unclean, so that no one would accidentally come into contact with them. Jesus wasn't afraid to lay hands on them. In fact, even wrap his arms around them. And so he, he submitted himself to lowly tasks, to tasks that no one else would do. In fact, of Philippians, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2. This is highlighter worthy in your Bible. It's not, gonna, it's not a bad thing to highlight in your Bible, by the way. It's okay. God doesn't mind. But Philippians chapter 2, in fact, verses 6 through 11 are known as the great kenosis, or the great emptying of Christ. But specifically in verse 8, it says in that, that he being found in the appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how willing Jesus was to, to be a servant. He was even willing to humble himself to the death on a cross, a shameful death. But what does he say? That whoever's uh, greatest among you will be least or who is least among you will be great? Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name. So because of this, he is actually highly exalted in heaven throughout all of eternity. So that's precisely what good spiritual leaders are looking to do, take on any lowly task, because what we know is we're actually going to be exalted for all of eternity. So now that he's spoken to what leading poorly looks like in these first few verses, he's now going to go into eight woes that we're going to see in the next several verses. Now, as we go there, let me ask you to also go to Matthew chapter 5. You might remember, this is months and months ago, early on in the church, we covered Matthew 5, the first sermon 
of Jesus, known as the Sermon on the Mount. There were eight blessings that Jesus gave in that first several verses of Matthew 5, known as the Beatitudes. You might have heard of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And so these eight blessings correlate with the eight cursings or the eight woes that he's going to pronounce upon these scribes and Pharisees. So we begin in verse 13 of Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so he pronounces a judgment upon their pride. But in verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit is who get access to the kingdom of heaven. But I might remind you that being poor in spirit isn't poor in wallet. It's not poor in your bank account. And it's not even thinking less of yourself. Often we can get in our mind, if I run myself down the road, that I'm being poor in spirit. That's actually not thinking of yourself at all or thinking of yourself less. And so what Jesus is encouraging them to do is be blessed and be poor in spirit. Think of yourself less or don't think of yourself at all. Instead, what these scribes and Pharisees are doing in verse 13 is they are actually keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven, but in fact, they're keeping themselves out of the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 18 is one spot that Jesus speaks specifically to the way in which these Pharisees would pray. It gives us an idea into this mindset of keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 18, 11, Jesus says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Look at me, Lord. Look at how well I'm doing. I'm so proud. So they're looking down upon others, placing judgment upon others. But, but look with me in verse 13 how Jesus speaks about the tax collector. He says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector in this scene actually saw himself rightly. When he looked in the mirror, he saw himself for precisely what he was. He was a sinner. Didn't deserve to even lift his eyes up to God. He was poor in spirit. Now then the second woe gets pronounced in verse 14. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Back to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who needs to mourn more than a widow, right? But in verse 14, the Pharisees would go to the widows and to these widows' houses, and they would actually in, intentionally pray for them and mourn with them, but in their hearts, they were actually looking for an advantage. As they're praying for this widow who just lost her husband, they would say, you know, what would be a great way to remember Jehoiada? He was such a great man. You know, you know what the church needs? We could commemorate him through fresh, hot schnitzels. We are going to have a schnitzel bar dedicated just to the memory of Jehoiada. If you just write a check made out to our temple today, we can give you 
a, a schnitzel bar for Jehoiada. Now, see, I did that, and I didn't even make a mistake. There you go. Y'all were waiting for it. Is he going to be able to get through it? This is precisely what Jesus is talking about. They were called to go in and mourn and come alongside these women who just lost a husband or children who had lost parents. But instead, what are they worried about? How can you give a little more? How can you give a little bit? But the reality is we're called to actually come alongside and mourn and trust God for the giving. Trust God for the provision. They had removed God completely from the equation. They had a problem. They needed fresh, hot schnitzels. They were determined to take care of the problem by taking advantage or manipulating a poor widow. And Jesus says, I won't stand for it. You're going to stand in a greater spot of condemnation because of this. Because here's the reality. God is the one that actually loves to provide for his children. He loves to come alongside us, especially when we begin to doubt, begin to have doubts in our minds. Is God really going to provide in this spot? Boy, I don't know. I mean, he can do a lot. He's the God of the universe, but I don't know if he can provide in this place. And so this, uh, this past week, I will tell you that we had uh, several bills here that actually had all piled up. And uh, I had had myself a little moment of doubting. They were, we did some renovations to the steeple uh, because the city hasn't recognized yet that we're tax exempt and we're filing paperwork. We had real estate taxes due this week and we had a, a church camp bill that was come up. So all three of these had totaled up the healthy sum of money. Now as a church, uh, we do not ever uh, mention tithing. I don't ever ask you to give because here's the thing, I don't want you to be uh, compelled to give. We'll get into that here in just a minute. But the point is, we don't ever ask for anything. We just know that where uh, God guides, God provides. But I did send a little note to my accountant to say, hey, got these three big bills. Can we cover these things? And so uh, just as I'd hit send, I walked away from my office, and about an hour later uh, realized that we had a deposit that I knew not of <laughs> for within $300 of the exact amount that I just emailed to the accountant. Because why? I had doubted just a little bit. God had actually already provided, and the thing was, um, that check was actually made out for the day before. It wasn't made for right then, when I had my moment of doubt. God had already taken care of, because he loves to provide for his children. This is what he does. Now then the next woe, in verse 15, we see, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Now then skipping back to chapter 5, verse 4, excuse me, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now I might remind you that meekness is not weakness. It's simply power under control. Jesus was meek. He was obviously not weak. He's telling these guys, look, you're making these proselytes just as much a son of hell as you are. I mean, he's laying down one powerful message at this point. But what was happening is uh, these Jews would go out and they would try to win someone that was a non-Jew. That's essentially what a, a proselyte is. They're one that is not a Jewish believer. They would bring them into the Jewish religion, and as they brought them into the religion, they then have to begin to go along with their traditions. They need to be circumcised. They need to go through the process of a, a mikvah, which is a water baptism. They had to go through. That's where we get baptisms from. 
Jesus actually had a mikvah. And so they would do this for proselytes, but the thing was, in their hearts, they were only concerned about making converts. How many people can we make into converts of our Jewish religion? But God didn't call us to make converts. He called us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all men. And what is in the root word of disciple? It's discipline. God calls us into a place of being disciplined as followers, as believers, but he was never interested in our systems or in our programs. We get all excited about, here's a program, how to lead someone to the Lord, but what do we do with them after that? We walk through these traditions, and I'm not running the traditions down the road. That's not the issue. It's that there is no follow-up. There's no continual learning. And so the desire here for Jesus is go and make disciples. And, and the, the warning for us here in the spot that we're in, in the middle of the Bible Belt, it's that almost everybody that we come into contact with has heard of Jesus. In fact, almost all that we come into contact with have probably have some kind of religious experience. A Charles Spurgeon would call them a death twitch. Somebody somewhere has always had a little death twitch, like they've almost come back to life. Lots of times it's been at a church camp or when they were little, but the reality is there is no fruit in their life to ever show that they were truly saved. And so we let people go their whole lives because they made a profession of faith at a young age when the reality is they need to be unsaved so that they can be saved. That was me, by the way. Made a profession of faith as a young man at seven years old, baptized in the church, all looked good, but yet there was no fruit later on in my life. There was no proof that I was actually following hard after Jesus. I would have signed a little form that said, yes, I'm a believer. I said I do. But there was no real submission. The willingness was really the key. The the laying down my life to put hands in the air and say, God, it's all yours. You can have it. Would I have gone to heaven with that simple profession as a young man? I don't know. But I'm sure glad I don't have to test him on it. I I wouldn't want to stand in front of him and say, was that good enough or was it not? I... It's talking to people truly about what does your walk with Jesus look like? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you in communication with one another? How are you going to have a relationship with someone you never talked to? That's a long-distance relationship. God's in it for a personal relationship. It was never about religion. It was always about relationships. Now then the next woe pronounced. He says, woe to you blind guides in verse 16 who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold in the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, in verse 18, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so we'll go back to the next beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
So they had an issue. They had a swearing problem. But what Jesus is really saying is you actually have a a righteousness problem. (laughs) For those who aren't righteous also seek the truth and they seek simplicity. For these Pharisees and the scribes, what's taking place here is uh, they would make these uh, great proclamations. Oh, I swear by the temple that I will do this thing for you. But then days later when you didn't actually fulfill that uh, promise, you come back to the guy and go, wait, I thought you swore by the temple that you would take care of this. Well, I, I did, but I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. And so, therefore, the, this promise is null and void. And they would do the same thing with sacrifices. They would say, oh, I swear by the altar of Jehovah that I will do this. But then they wouldn't fulfill their obligation. And so when people would come back, they would say, well, I didn't swear by the sacrifice that was upon the altar. Therefore, uh, that's that promise, my uh, proclamation to you, that doesn't hold. And Jesus is saying, look, you're blind. Because what I'm actually after in this relationship is righteousness. I'm after the truth. And in fact, the reality is, as these guys are making a mockery of vows, um, Jesus says, don't even take a vow. <laughs> don't take any vow at all, because in Matthew 5.37, he says, you should let your yes be yes, and your no should be no, and anything that comes beyond this is from Satan. It's from the evil one. We should be such a people that conducts ourselves so righteously that if I tell you I'm going to do something, I shouldn't have to promise on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. All these things that we do to make sure this promise is going to hold. Pinky promise. Right? That, that the reality is, as a Christian people, we should be so righteous and truthful that whatever we say, that is what we're going to do. And whatever we say we're not going to do, we're not going to do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be be no. Now then, verse 23, he continues on and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm going to make sure he throws that in there. You pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Back to Matthew chapter 5, in verse 7, where he says, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, Jesus is specifically addressing their tithes and their offerings. They would take uh, their, their spices, their mint and their cumin, these little bitty spices, and they would count them all out individually, one at a time. Nine for me, one for you, God. Nine for me, one for you. And they would do this to such great degree, making sure they didn't uh, cheat God. They gave God exactly what he had coming to him. But what Jesus says is, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. In the law, the smallest unclean uh, being or animal of all was the gnat. They were looking to strain out this little bitty unclean thing, but the largest unclean animal was the camel. So as they're busy trying to strain out a gnat, they've got themselves served up a big old uh, camel platter right there in front of them. And what Jesus is trying to get across is, I didn't desire this at all. In fact, the thing I desire most are blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What God says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, is that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
They were busy with the sacrifice. They had the system going on, but they had forgotten to be merciful to one another, with one another. What is the definition of mercy? It's not getting what I do deserve. I don't know about you, but when I cry out to God, I'm crying for mercy. Lord, don't give me what I deserve. I know exactly what it is, and I don't want it. But they were short on mercy, and they were busy swallowing camels whole. Now then in verse 25 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside they were full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup, that the outside of them may be clean also. And so here he's going to be sharing about cleanliness of the inside of the vessel. What vessels he's speaking of? He's speaking of their own bodies, of course. And in verse 8 of Matthew 5, as he goes through the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the pure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Imagine that. That the pure in heart shall actually see God. That the key to being able to see God in your life is purity. Which is precisely why we say compromise always leads to corruption. Corruption always leads to death. These Pharisees were blinded by their hypocrisy. And the only thing that could actually be done to cleanse them was, Paul says in Ephesians 5.26, the washing of the water of the word. They need the word of God to actually wash them on the inside. Outside, they were doing good. When it came to Sunday mornings at church, boy, they looked good. They had their Sunday best on. But the reality is they were not being continually washed by the water of the word. And this is a progressive thing. This, this is something that doesn't happen overnight. When it comes to uh, hypocrisy, by the way, and corruption, that doesn't happen overnight either. It's progressive, much like the cleansing is progressive. It takes time. And I was thinking about this this week, thinking about Old Testament examples, the story of Samson, that Bible story we love, right? The strong man of the Old Testament, Samson in uh, Judges chapter 16. And as a man, he was called by God as one that would actually deliver the nation of Israel. He would actually be a judge for Israel, mighty and strong. But for Samson, uh, he had three things he needed to do, three uh, specific things he needed to follow. Uh, first of all was don't have anything to do with the vine, nothing to do with grapes. This is a part of his Nazarite vow. Uh, secondly was do not touch dead bodies. Not sure why we'd want to touch dead bodies anyway, but Samson, stay away. And thirdly was don't cut your hair. Now, what we know from the story of Samson is he had, uh, he had trouble with the drink. He liked him some wine, and so he violated this one continuously as he was running around gallivanting all over Israel and Philistia. But secondly, he was told not to touch dead bodies, and what we see in Samson is what he finds is a dead lion, actually a lion that he had killed himself, and he comes back through the vineyard as he's walking to uh, uh, Philistia, and as he's going through a vineyard, shouldn't be there, and he comes across the body of this dead lion, he finds some honey in there. I mean, nothing like a yum yummy honey snack inside the carcass of a dead lion. Now you're all getting hungry for lunch. He reaches his hand in there, and he dips, and he takes some of that honey, and he enjoys that. He's violated two out of three. We see 
continual compromise, compromise. The only one left was cutting his hair. And so when I arrived to Judges chapter 16, he's there with a, a Philistine woman named Delilah, and she's trying to get him to tell the secret of his uh, great powers. What secret do you have? And two other occasions, he lies to her. He says, oh, I, I can't be tied up with ropes. They've got to be a, a ropes of a fresh vine. And he breaks the ropes whenever he thinks the Philistines are coming in. And so this is the interaction he's having with Delilah. He's flirting with complete and total corruption until finally he gives in and he tells her his secret. I can't have my hair cut. So what does she do that when he falls asleep that night, she cuts his hair off. And then in verse 20, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And so he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. I'm going to go out just like I've done every other time and I'm going to lay a whooping to some Philistines. And so that's precisely what he intends to do. But look with me at the end of verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. One of the saddest verses in all the Old Testament. Here's a guy that was given all this power, all this ability, all this God-given anointing, but he didn't even know that he lost it. God had left him, and he had no idea. And so we see very much how compromise can lead to corruption. And what took place for Samson very much happens for these same Pharisees. His eyes were plucked out. <laughs> he became blind. You blind guides. You can't even see. But they didn't even know that the Lord had left. And this happens in our life too, by the way. That so much time goes by. We let so much compromise take place that we don't even know the Lord left us. What do we do to get back to it? Back to Ephesians 5.26, the washing of the water of the word. Are you in God's word? Continue. Are you letting it cleanse you from the inside out? That's the question. Now then, the next woe. In verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so for these scribes and Pharisees, well, first we'll go back and read the Beatitude before I get excited. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now then, for these Pharisees, what they would do, because they wanted to be so recognized by men, they would fast. And as they're fasting, they would go to the market, of course, because that's where all the people are gathered. And they would take their face and they would put on a little bit of white makeup to make themselves look so holy and so famished because they're fasting before the Lord. Oh, they would cry out because they're so hungry. And people would walk by and go, man, look at Malachi, how holy he is. He is the holiest of all the Pharisees because he's so famished as he cried out. But what Jesus says is you're like whitewashed tombs. And in that day, they would actually take the tombs and they would wash them with white as well, much like they painted their faces. And they did this because Jews were not allowed to touch any dead thing, otherwise they would be unclean for seven days. 
Now you can imagine if you're headed to the Passover feast, this is like their their Super Bowl of all feasts, right? It's it's their Juper Bowl. As they're headed to the Juper Bowl, if they accidentally stumbled upon a graveyard and tripped, what happens is you're unclean. You can no longer go to the temple. They can't partake in the feast. And so what they would do is they would paint these tombs with white. They would whitewash them so it would be obvious when you came upon a graveyard. Now it makes a little more sense to what Jesus is comparing them to as they paint themselves white. You are whitewashed tombs. You make people unclean that come into contact with you, but inside you are just like those sepulchers. Dead men's bones are actually inside. And so instead, what he's saying is you, you should be called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So imagine, here's these guys that are supposed to be called to be peacemakers, and instead they're plotting and planning to kill the Prince of Peace. They're giving all these sacrifices to the Lord. They're they're claiming they're fasting to the Lord. They just split out their tithes and offerings to the Lord. But God is always concerned about the heart, so much more than our sacrifice. In fact, this is why Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, speaking about the heart of the giver. He says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, So let one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What he's saying is don't worry about what you've got painted up on the outside. God is worried about how cheerful you are on the inside with your giving. And that phrase, cheerful giver, in the Greek could also be translated hilarious giver. God wants us as we're giving any kind of offering, whether it's money, time, resources, for us to be hilarious when we do it. I should literally, when I walk back to the tithe and offering box, throw my head back and go, ha-ha! Wow, God, you're so good. I can't believe how good you are. The same thing when it comes to service. God, you are so good. This is hilarious. I know right where I should be. I should be down in the ditch, and yet you've pulled me up and put me in this place, and I'm so grateful. And when we get our heart in that spot, you know what it brings about? Peace. We become peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. When you realize that all you have is not yours in the first place, and that we get to give back to God what was already his, It's great gain. Godliness with contentment. So if you've been in a spot where you've wondered, I don't have any peace, I don't feel like I've had any gain in my life, how are you doing with godliness? How are you doing with being content with what he's given you? There is where you actually find great gain. Now on to verse 29 for the final woe of Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you build tombs of the prophets. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes, 
Some you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the unrighteous may come all the righteous bloodshed of the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus pronounces a woe against the persecution of his righteous, but he pronounces a blessing for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so as we go about, and and as, by the way, the church is going to be persecuted more and more the closer we get to the end, but that's a blessing from God. Blessing for righteousness' sake. I want to make that very clear, too, by the way, that Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, oftentimes, there can be people who are persecuted, but it's not for the sake of righteousness. It's, in fact, just for the sake of being weird or annoying. Like, some people are just persecuted because they're flatly annoying. Have you ever been to a place where you've seen a street preacher's I used to go with my family to the Indy 500. As we would walk down Georgetown Avenue, there'd be the guys standing there with the signs, and they'd be yelling out, fornicators, drunks, whores. They would yell these things out on the crowd. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what would happen is beer bottles thrown at them, they'd be spit on, and I'd walk by and think, man, I don't think I could be persecuted in that way. I mean, they, they are super righteous and then i get to this spot in scripture and i think no they're just annoying (laughs) i mean they're just weird they were actually there trying to do a good thing but because it wasn't for righteousness sake you don't see jesus standing on a street corner pronouncing judgment upon people what do we see in the life of christ helping people you ever been persecuted in the midst of helping someone you don't have to raise your hands you ever been persecuted in the middle of trying to love somebody? I just want to love them through this thing. And yet what happens? Persecution. Pain. You ever been persecuted when you've forgiven? No one's been persecuted more that's forgiven more than Jesus. That's what he's saying. Blessed are you in the midst of that. Be reassured when you're in the midst. And don't do what Satan wants you to do and stop loving. Stop forgiving. Stop helping people. Blessed are you. That's the promise that God's given. But for the self-righteous, what we see in, in what Jesus is specifically addressing here is that, in fact, he's not pronouncing judgment upon them. They've actually pronounced judgment upon themselves. Through their own self-righteousness, they have pronounced judgment upon themselves and their own nation. And so he's going to continue and say in verse 36, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What we find is for that generation of Jews, that in just about 40 years, in the year 70 A.D., that all of Jerusalem is completely obliterated by the Roman government. 
They come in and they kill literally millions of Jews in the street. They take their temple to this very day. It's still down to nothing. You go on the Temple Mount in Israel, in Jerusalem, and you will see nothing but a foundation is left. No stone was left upon another. And so this prophecy was fulfilled very nearly at the first coming of Jesus. Now then in verse 38, we see the response of Christ. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. This is a heartbreak of the Father. He's not looking upon them going, See, you get what you had coming, stinking non-believers. But instead, he cries out in heartbreak. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He does the same thing multiple times in the New Testament. He cries out for Simon, Simon Peter. In Luke chapter 22, he says, Simon, Simon, oh, how Satan wanted to sift you by, like wheat, but I prayed for you. He says the same thing to Martha, who's there with her sister Mary. He says, Martha, Martha, all the things that make for your worry. You're so worried and worked up, Martha. And then for the Apostle Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Over and over again, we see the cry of the Father because while we look at these woes, Jesus is actually crying out in agony. Would you just turn? In each one of these cases, he's crying out for the heart of these people to turn to him. Why? Because God was never interested in our destruction. He has never, from the beginning of creation until today, been interested in our demise. Ezekiel chapter 33, one of the last places I take you, I promise. Ezekiel, back in the Old Testament, this is while they're in Babylonian captivity, he says this in verse 11, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, the, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. There's that repeating in Scripture. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This is the heart of the Father. Turn, turn back to me. One final place in verse 39. We see Jesus say, For I say to you that you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knows that in just a few days he's going to wrap this up. And that they're not going to see him again until they cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking specifically of his second coming. For these Jews, they're going to miss out on an opportunity to see him at his first coming. And because of that, they're going to see tremendous amounts of tribulation. They're going to see tremendous amounts of pain. Precisely what he's calling us to. Turn to me now in this time so you don't have to experience even more pain and suffering. But on his 
second coming, when he arrives for the second time, what he says in uh, Zechariah chapter 13, this is what they're going to say to him on that day. They're going to say, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he, Jesus, will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. They're going to look upon him and see the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side and say, hey, what happened? And you're going to say, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. The people that should have stood up for me instead uh, crucified me. But each and every one of us has an opportunity. We have an opportunity today to turn, to decide, to be made willing, to lay things down because what uh, Paul writes to the Galatians is don't be deceived. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, God will not be mocked. He will not stand up for mockery. But that which a man sows, he will also reap. And so the concern Jesus has is the same that we should have in our lives today. That which a man sows, he will also reap. And if anyone has done any farming or planting in a garden, what you know are three things about gardening. Um, you only reap the same kind that you sow. You don't plant corn and get tomatoes a few weeks later. You get the same kind that you sow. And you always reap, secondly, after you sow. You don't plant today and harvest tomorrow. And thirdly, most importantly, you always reap more than you sow. And so it causes us to question, what are we sowing in the lives of those around us? What are we sowing in our own lives? Because that is what we're going to reap. Now, the good news is, what Jesus is calling for today is he's offering us independence on Independence Day. We get an opportunity to actually be independent of sin for all of eternity. We no longer have to be shackled and tied down to this sinful life, this body of death. And the only thing we have to do, the only thing stopping us is mere acceptance. It's just a turn. It's a deciding, I have decided to follow Jesus kind of a conversation. That's it. And so if you're here today, and that's you, today is a day of salvation. Praise the Lord. And if you're here, and perhaps you have drifted away, you've let some things get in the way in your relationship, and you just simply need the washing of the water of the word, guess what? Good news. That's today. Today is the day to turn and become independent of that which so easily traps you. And so, Father God, we thank you, and we praise you for woes. <laughs> we actually praise you for the warning signs that we can see so easily, signs that look like unrighteousness, that look like selfishness, that look like self-deception, Lord. Please cleanse these things out of our life. Please, Father, take hypocrisy. Help us to be a people of integrity that operate and do what we say we're going to do. Father, please help us to turn back to you and accept you before it's too late. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for second and third and fourth and fourteenth chances, Lord. Over and over and over again, we praise you. 
for giving us a chance to turn. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated, and then as Jake and Michaela uh, begin to play, invite you to come up and take uh, the elements and take them back to your seat, and we'll take those together here in just a few minutes.
so as the Apostle Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, they were a group that had gotten communion awfully wrong. They had plenty of money, they had plenty of fame, they had all the success you could imagine, but they had, they had missed out on the first thing. They had lost their love. And so, as Paul was trying to reinstitute the Lord's Supper, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your body, which was broken on our behalf, which we by no way deserve to partake in. But we thank you, Lord, for it. We thank you for giving yourself for us, for our unrighteousness. In Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord, we do proclaim you. We proclaim your name. We thank you that you have decided and made us a holy people. Father, we thank you for the cleansing of your blood, that when you look upon us, you don't see a sinful man standing here. You don't see a sinful woman sitting there. Instead, you only see the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for purity and for cleansing. Lord, we proclaim your name. We proclaim you as our first love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil while we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come and made us
Let the darkness be Show your mighty hand Heal our streets and land Set your church on fire Win this nation back Change the atmosphere Build your kingdom here of hell can stop your beauty changing hearts you made us for much more than this awake the kingdom seed in us fill us with the strength and love of Christ we are your church we are the hope the darkness be show your mighty hand heal our streets and land set your church on fire win this nation back change the atmosphere build your kingdom here church says amen amen all right thank you guys so much uh, god bless you i just want to remind you as we looked at a lot of woes today that the hope is right here it's christ in you that's the hope of glory and so the the beauty of this is uh, god is not looking to judge but he's looking to save and so go out be the church god bless you guys please uh, stick around for lunch today uh, don't forget we got some smoked chicken. So looking forward to that. God bless you guys. Happy 4th.